Welcome to Bring It to the Altar, a new podcast proudly brought to you by the One Spirit Interfaith Foundation. Founded in London in 1996, One Spirit Interfaith Foundation is an educational charity training open-hearted adults exploring interfaith ministry, spiritual counselling, sacred activism and the world's many faith paths. This new podcast will bring you up close with the work of the One Spirit team, faculty, graduate ministers and their wider community of teachers, elders and friends. Weaving tales from right across the globe, each episode will feature a new voice and tell a unique story of how this important work makes its way into the world. And what a better place to start than at the very beginning with One Spirit founder, Miranda McPherson, who is in conversation with One Spirit's creative lead, Amy Firth. Miranda McPherson has been guiding others into direct experience of the sacred for over 30 years internationally. Having completed her own interfaith seminary training in New York, in 1996, Miranda founded our One Spirit Interfaith Foundation, where she spent 10 years training and ordaining the UK's first interfaith ministers. Late last year, we connected with Miranda online to hear all about those early days, what she's up to now, and also gain a sneak peek into the teachings of her latest book, The Way of Grace. My name is Amy Firth. Welcome to Bring It to the Altar. So Miranda, in 2018, we're celebrating a big anniversary for the One Spirit Interfaith Foundation, some 21 years. Um, We've been running in the UK now, and all that we are is built upon the foundations that you laid down when you were somewhat tasked with bringing this phenomenal training from the US to the UK. It's such a joy to have this time with you to hear in your own words not only what that experience must have been like for you, but also looking back on the last two decades, the importance of this work and the calling of this work, how it shifts and the importance of it in the world today. I'm mindful that's a very big introductory welcome question. So I'll shrink it down and say, what was it like for you in the beginning? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, it was it was powerful and beautiful and surprising and intense in equal proportions and not something I ever expected or set out to do. I had been looking in my early 20s. I knew I wanted to do some more study. And I was thinking of, you know, considering a psychology PhD, And every curriculum I looked at, just I wasn't turned on by it. And then I somehow was given the curriculum of what was then called the New Seminary, which was the seminary that Rabbi Joseph Gelberman had founded, which was really the birthing place of all interfaith seminaries that I know about anyway. They kind of sprung out of that. Um, And it was the first time I'd seen any kind of curriculum which had everything I was interested in. And then things that I knew were missing gaps 
in my own spiritual education in one place. And so the fact that at that time I was living in Birmingham and the seminary was taking place in New York City, um, you know, when you're young and in your 20s, you know, you have this sort of why not attitude. And um, it just happened that the dollar to uh, pound exchange rate was very much in our favor. <laughs> and I had the time on my hands. And so I flew over to New York City as much as I can and did the rest that I could listening to the recordings. And I will say that the actual training itself was very disappointing. It was very lightweight, very flaky, um, not what I had hoped for. But I had a surprisingly important experience receiving a transmission from Rabbi Gelberman. And from the minute I phoned him to ask about the course, the very first thing he said to me was, oh, good, you'll run the training in England. Huh. And I thought, this guy's not hearing me. Mm. I, and I said, no, no, you don't understand. I'm, I'm phoning you because I want to become a student. And he says, no, good, you'll run the training. In <laughs> <laughs> and I was getting irritated, thinking he's just not listening. <laughs> mm. um, but he never let up on you'll run the training in England. It wasn't will you, it was you will. And I was just saying no. And then I had a very powerful experience in the actual moment of my ordination. And that was surprising because at the time in my life, I wasn't interested in ritual. I found it pretty silly and meaning. I had various opinions about the irrelevance of ritual. It wasn't what I was into. But, it, you know, sometimes we're surprised out of our own opinions. And my experience of ordination ignited something very powerful in me and in the weeks that followed where I was for some interesting reason alone in the home a lot. So I was meditating a great deal and waves of different kind of energies and emotions were moving through me. And I found myself one day on the floor of my meditation room, you know, full prostrate face down really feeling very deeply, you know, the impetus of surrender and the willingness to have my life completely used for the surface of what would really help to dissolve separation, unnecessary separation. And from that moment, I remember kind of sitting up and all of a sudden becoming clear that the answer was yes, I would lead the seminary, I would start a seminary, um, I would do what was asked of me. And so I got on the phone to Rabbi Gelderman and I said, okay, my answer's yes, but here's the thing, I've got to be able to create my own curriculum because your curriculum was too disappointing for me. Mm. And you can't transplant something from one culture and expect it to work in another and I knew that there were many things about the way things were done in New York and the style and the, that had to do a lot with culture that wouldn't translate in England. Mm. And I also knew that the stronger need in England and the UK was spiritual counselling because the law at that time, I don't know what it is now, but was that really there was nowhere for people to go outside of a conventional religious structure where they could talk about mm. their spiritual yearnings, you know, the, 
professional psychotherapists, licensed psychotherapists could get banned, could lose their license by engaging in spiritual conversations with their patients. Wow. So given that what I knew, which was it's the majority of people who would say they're spiritual but not necessarily religious, or who might be wanting to really take what's true and real about their religious tradition, but find authentic truth and meaning and the, the living of that in our contemporary culture mm. that I think Ken Wilber, you know, describes as postmodern, um, that that was a very strong need. And I was really in touch with that for myself and for all the people that I was meeting. And that most of the interfaith work was, you know, I hope this doesn't sound respectful. I mean it tongue in cheek, the boys in black with some of the most conservative, frankly, misogynistic and backward rooms, and not to mention defensive environments I've ever walked into. Mm. So it was very clear to me that there was a very important gap that needed to be filled and that by some weird grace that I can't lay claim to, um, it was asked of me to do this. Mm. Mm. So I, you've got to remember that I was a 26-year-old girl. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking about a 25, 26-year-old, which is kind of wild, you know. Yeah. And so I thought, oh, this will be a small thing. And so I went about, you know, trying to find a venue. At first mm. I thought that there was this sort of multi-faith temple that a, a woman had built in the backyard of her big home in Reading. She offered it to me. I thought, well, it makes sense. She was a devotee of Sai Baba. But very clear, the interest was stronger than would fit in that tiny small space. And so um, the pastor at the time of St. James's Church um, agreed to meet with me, and he was so kind. He offered me the use of the church hall for a very, very low rate, which made it financially viable to begin. So we met in that basement hall mm. of St. James's Church in Piccadilly. And, you know, it's a good thing that I was young because just the, the intensity of, you know, getting up that early, driving to London from Oxford where I lived then, mm. and, you know, I had to clean the space because there were often homeless people sleeping there there was often human defecation and wow. it was very dirty. Mm. So I had to come with cleaning supplies, just do what needed to be done. I usually had to clean the toilets as well, get, get tea because one thing I know about English culture is that unless <laughs> yes. there's a cup of tea waiting for you, there's overt rebellion, Yes, um, which is, again, you know, just something that an American mm. wouldn't know or you just wouldn't know that mm. if you hadn't mm. lived in the UK. Um, and I would be physically sweating by the time I opened the doors at 8.30 a.m. and let mm. the people. And then I would teach the day and then clean it up and then drive home to Oxford. So mm. wow. it, it took a lot mm. of dedication and energy. And, of course, at first, you know, it was all new. And yeah. the, the kinds of people that emerged, that showed up in that first class were you know, they had the pioneering spirit too, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. but they were so, but it ended up because of that being a bunch of really strong characters. And mm. so there was a really steep learning curve for me of 
having to really learn a lot really fast mm. while under pressure, while basically trying to map out and deliver a curriculum that was useful to people, that was helpful to people, that gave them some meat and some depth. Yeah. Um, so those um, first few years I was scrambling to mm. pull that off. It was not easy. <laughs> there were many times where I felt like I was failing miserably and that I really should quit and throw in the towel, but I didn't. Mm. So, and yeah. thank, thank the Lords and the Lordess that you didn't because here, here we are. Here we are because of those early years. I'm also, I'm also mindful that all of this was sort of in the mid to late 90s, which was right on the cusp of the internet and the technological boom that we now just so take for granted. So I'm mindful you're doing all of this without Facebook and without Google and without email and without... Yeah, it all happened by snail mail. (laughs) It all happened by snail mail, um, which is hilarious. It really dates me, you know. And not only that, but um, obviously, you know, anyone who's been through the seminary correctly know that it takes you on a journey, mm. right? It's confronting. Mm. It sounds like, oh, this is wonderful. But, you know, by about the third or fourth month, if you're actually doing the reading, if you're engaging with the spiritual practices and showing up, then it's going to be starting to bring up some stuff that maybe you thought you dealt with or yeah. things that you maybe didn't quite know were there. And your defenses come up and your reactions and your hurts and your vulnerabilities and your doubt, and mm. all of that material that... <clears throat> any spiritual path that's worth following is going to dislodge and invite you to meet it more deeply, more substantially. Mm. Do the work, you know. So what was happening in the first couple of groups is all their stuff was coming up and um, what was super helpful for me, I was super glad I was in therapy at the time, you know. I intuitively Mm. knew I need some support here. And my therapist said, sounds like you could do with some group dynamic specialist supervision. So she sent me to this really cool guy, and I wish I remember his name, but mm. I don't. And his name, he was trained in Arnie Mandel's process-oriented psychotherapy. And he really gave me a context to understand how to know when a group is evolving, when things are going as they should, and what the facilitator needs to be keeping an eye on what they need to be modeling most. So that was invaluable for me actually staying with it and not throwing in the towel mm. by educating myself about the missing gaps, things I really needed help to understand so that I could actually do this in a way that was useful. Mm. Um, yeah, but, but part of it was that once people's inner material was getting activated, they really needed more support from me emotionally spiritually psychologically and because there was no email really at the time it was just beginning mm. all this happened by a phone time wow so i had three phone times during the week from like 10 a.m to 12 p.m on a monday wednesday and friday wow that was a hotline i kid you not i mean as soon as i put down one call, there'd be another there'd be another there'd mm. be another there'd be another it was really intense so that showed me okay, what, how do we bring in support, more support so that the students can get what they need to really work with the material and to relax into, you know, what, it, what's, what it's bringing up for them 
and to basically keep turning whatever is coming up into their path, into their practice, engaging their practice in relationship to whatever it is that's being triggered. So that was educating me as to what was needed. Okay, mentors were needed, more support. Mm. You know, certain mentors assigned to a, a small group of students so that we could track people pick up on problems before they became big problems, yeah. prevent people slipping through the cracks. And also that they could feed back to me what was going on so I could integrate and include what they were observing to dial in the way I was teaching the various subjects and mm. the emphasis that was needed with this particular group of people. Mm. So in a way I was, sort of, I was breathing a lot and running to see, you know, what was needed in response to what was happening. Mm. And so that was really my servant leadership, if you like, is responding to what was needed. And that's very much how I operate even today. You know, yeah. I don't superimpose, I think this, it's like what's needed and then the creativity and the, the skills come in to fill what's needed and in the way that is most skillful. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm so struck by the image of a 25-year-old <laughs> kind of given this task or this calling, not only the saying yes, but also the turning up, but then also sort of having that that trust and that insight of of knowing how to evolve your experience of the training in the US into a way that's that's culturally accessible for people in the UK, but also I guess spiritually more accessible or, or, or able to be plumbed for deeper truths in a way. Well, um, I think the fact that I was young mm. and not English had some positive benefit there right. because I had already left my country of origin. I had already had to encounter the unique cultural phenomena that is the UK. Mm. <laughs> Very different than a culture that I grew up in. So I already had to go, ha, huh, wow, there's a particular value about tea here. Okay, fairness is a really important thing. People get really upset about this, this, and that. Oh, okay. So I'd already had to grok and learn things that someone who had actually come out of that culture might not necessarily have been able to see objectively. Mm. And I'd also traveled a lot by that time, you know, to other countries. And I'd done a training in America and I'd seen how vastly different New York culture. I mean, I live in San Francisco now, which is totally different to New York. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And I could see this training was very New York. Mm. It was, you know, strong Jewish emphasis. Um, you know, a lot of people kind of in and around the theater, a mm. lot of extrovert kinds of stuff big focus on ceremonies and performing weddings, almost no training on how to really be with people spiritually in a way that helps to help them grapple with their questions, you know, and to deepen spiritually. That was what I thought was really missing mm. and what I felt most passionate about, actually, in terms of what was needed. And also that I was young, so I wasn't coming out of a paradigm of the past. I was really quite fresh i mean the miracle is that anybody took me seriously <laughs> but um but i already had a lot of understanding that you know was both spiritual understanding because i had been walking a substantial 
path since I was 13 years old. So yeah. while I was physically young, um, I wasn't really young spiritually. There were, but I was young on the human level. And yes. so there were many things that needed to be learned and many mistakes I made too that when I look back, I think a lot of them had to do with the fact that I was just young, you know, mm. certain things I didn't know yet or hadn't had the mm. chance to integrate yet. And um, that's all part of it. Yeah, yeah. So from those first few classes in the crypt at St. James, hands and knees scrubbing the floors and preparing the tea, <laughs> over the next 10 years, the origins of our seminary in the UK continue to grow and grow. What was that time like? How did people find out? Where did they come from? What, was, what were they saying? Yeah. How? how, how? <laughs> well, I really don't know, other than that personally I was very hooked into the Course in Miracles community because, you know, I was deeply you know, committed to that path for myself at the time. And, you know, I had a lot of involvement with what, with what's still the Miracle Network. Mm. So I think a lot of people were coming out of that. But a lot of it, I think, was just word of mouth. I mean, I think I just advertised in a few minor places. I think I advertised in the Alternatives magazine, knowing that I did, that that went to a lot of people across a very broad net um, I think I advertised in the Miracle Worker. I can't think that I advertised much more broadly than that. Mm. Most of it was word of mouth. Mm. And, um, you know, after the first sort of three years, I think by year four, I started to get more confidence, more of a sense of clarity about what the curriculum really needed to to do i feel like the curriculum kind of landed by about year four mm. and um that i gained more confidence in how to facilitate in a way that was effective and that we started bringing the mentors in and then the the training of the mentors i started putting a lot more time and energy into actually training them sharing more with them about how to hold people it was i considered the mentors program a bit like the more advanced version of the, the mm. training on spiritual counseling Mm. Um, and that was very beautiful, very sweet time. I, I really had such gratitude for everyone who served as a mentor and the sweetness of the, the smaller kind of gatherings that we had and all the love and the service that they gave mm. you know, voluntarily. Pretty amazing. Mm. And then, of course, people like, you know, I invited Peter Dewey in. I didn't know him at all at the time, but I respected him greatly for his sort of thunderous depth as a human being and as someone who had been deeply dedicated to, you know, interfaith work and who really understood, as he intuitively did, um, that something very, very new and substantial needed to happen mm. to help more people wake up, you know, beyond the confines of religion and to really share mystical truth. Mm in a way that hadn't quite been shared before. And he was an immense support. And, in, and to me personally, as much as he was to the students, but to me personally, his presence and his um, devotion mm. is, uh, is beautiful. And I, I had the great pleasure of meeting up with him in London last year. And, 
and we had this beautiful moment where we were saying goodbye to one another. And um, he said, that was a really wonderful time. I said, yes, it was. And I couldn't have done it without you. Mm. I, I really needed his presence and his support. And uh, so I feel immensely grateful. And I, I hope that the whole community feels immensely grateful mm. to be for what he gave. And also at great personal risk. I mean, he was working at the time, you know, as an you know Anglican priest, yeah, and yeah. he really could have gotten into some pretty serious trouble from being involved with us, yeah. but he did it anyway. And that, to me, says everything about who he is mm. and where his depth of service really comes from, that he is willing to put himself on the line for the sake of what's true. Mm. We were united in that I understand that too. Yes. And to me, that's what being a minister is, that if you take ordination, then you are giving your life over to mm. serve what's true, you know, whatever the personal cost. And sometimes the personal cost is great. Yeah. But yeah. when you love the truth that much, mm. you, you're just willing to do what needs to be done. Mm. Yeah, gosh, I'm so, I'm so moved by really feeling into and giving names and faces to not only yourself and people like Peter Dewey, but people for me who were holding this space 20 years ago in really laying the foundations of this work at a time, I mean, it's still quite controversial for a lot of people, but at the, particularly at the time, I mean, talk about a new frontier, talk about pioneering. Yeah, and it was very controversial. I had a lot of, it really set the cat among the pigeons in the existing interfaith world that yeah. from my perspective was focused more on politics than it was mm. on coming together, mm. you know, and I found that like really unsatisfying. I wasn't, yeah, I and mean, there's value, great value and importance in that. But, you know, what I was really in touch with all along is that, yes, interfaith work, you know, dialogue between people of established traditions is very important for our world. Absolutely. I would never question that. But the majority of people uh, do not define themselves as a this or a that. Mm. They are now the majority and especially amongst the younger community, I mean, people under 40. Mm. I'm nearly 50, but I could feel that was the wave and that those people really needed serving and support. Otherwise, the, the concern is everything just becoming far too materialistic, which is what we're seeing in our world, you know, yeah. we're seeing... Um, great spiritual disconnection, more spiritual poverty, I think, than we've ever seen. Great material abundance for some mm -hmm. and tremendous spiritual poverty for the majority. And that is not what our world needs. Our world needs more, more human beings who are connected from the inside to what's real and have more access to the qualities of their essential true nature and their deeper humanity so that they can live that in their lives in the world, whether that's in a very simple, ordinary way, by the way we raise our family and just show up in daily life, 
or whether that manifests as specific roles that we are tasked to fulfill in the world where we really bring, you know, our more noble qualities and a deeper way of being to the tasks that we do. Mm. I think nothing could be more important right now. Mm. Oh, you're preaching to the choir, sister. I hear you. I hear you. Mm. That's a big part of why mm. I just read a book that's about to come out called The Way of Grace. Mm. And while I don't see a need to, to say I'm reverend anything, um, I'm just more interested in what I've always been interested in, which is helping people wake up yeah, and helping yeah. people not only have direct experience of the deeper truth of who we are, which is unified, which is one, <laughs> which is not your true nature and mine. It's not real estate. Mm. Actually, it's our true nature. We are happening. We are multiple displays in the one fabric of divine being. And when we know that, we are naturally loving, we're naturally respectful, we're naturally kind, we're naturally compassionate. We relate to everything and everyone that might take a different shape or form as part of ourself. And so that helps us to be deeper humanitarians and wiser in the way we respond to everything. So I have just continued what I started, but I'm not training ministers anymore. Mm. I am just sharing it. Mm. And I have been evolving the teachings that, in a way, I think of the seminary as my personal training. I created the curriculum, but after creating the curriculum and delivering it for 10 years, I had a huge awakening that took me to a whole other level of understanding. And mm. so I have just continued. Mm. Um, continued, and I'm sharing that with anyone who's interested in it, whether they're interested in becoming a minister or not. It's like, that's a personal thing, but yeah, yeah. I'm interested in helping more human beings to become more graceful, mm. more actualized, more real. And um, to me, that's what's important. Yeah. Oh, I hear you. I hear you. It's, it's a beautiful part of my job for the foundation as, as sort of marketing coordinator is that I get to often try and put words around who we are and what we do and what this is and what it's about and we attract such a diverse group of people that we don't sort of have a, a target audience that we can clearly find and and write some clever advertising to and yet if we do look for a common thread in the people who are drawn to our training it's simply that what you're saying it's it's a willingness or a curiosity to go beyond the surface of our life mm -hmm. and, and a real longing to explore that in, in ourselves and in each other and in community. I find that people that are drawn to this training are very often drawn to, to beauty, to the beauty mm -hmm. of connection, to the beauty of life, to the beauty of nature, to the beauty of love. And I, I really feel like that's such a big part of the essence of what you sowed in those early years. Yeah, it's an interesting thing you say that because I, I think that is probably part of my vibration that mm. sort of reverberates through. And I call the experience of grace very beautiful, the experience of unity where the walls of our separate self-construct breaks down. It is beautiful. 
you know, letting, seeing who we really are and what really is, is beautiful. The experience of God is beautiful, of course. And yet we often hear the word beauty and think of it in superficial terms, but we don't quite recognize that it's, a, it's an attribute, an inherent attribute of our true nature. And it moves us deeply, mm. inspires us deeply. But I, I would hope that what's really clear in your articulation is that this has always been about, this was founded very clearly to train people to go out into the world, to give them a foundation, to be able to share a possibility for others on this that wasn't there before. Mm. And my concern is that, you know, it becomes a little too self-serving about a community, whereas it's not actually, it was never my intention to set up a community. My intention was to set a really amazing training and course to light people up, clear their obstacles so that they could go further and deeper into the world so that they could be many, 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 many doing small groups, working with people privately, you know, showing up in communities or creating communities. Yes. So it was for people to go out into the world. And I hope that hasn't been lost. Mm. I can safely say in my own experience, that's, absolutely not the case we we do have a very strong community of our graduates and and the reach and the diversity of their unique and individual ministries i think is is one of the richest blessings of this work and should be something that um that yeah i i pray that you feel the reverberations returning to you of just how far this work has traveled through the hands and the words and the hearts of, of our graduates, the depths and the richness and the beauty um, mm. that this training brings to the lives of our graduates um, and, and the grit as well. Like it's, it's yeah, all tiny stuff like we know, but it's, there's, a, mm. there's a deepening into our capacity, I think, to, to be with the shadow and to be with the grit and, and the grace and, and yes, to be with the complexity and, you know, grace is very practical. You know, the, the, the paradox is that often what seems to be so mystical is usually what has the most practical power to really help us. And you just take a look at our world right now and it's really clear that a lot more grace is needed, spiritual maturity is needed, you know, being able to truly not, be so caught up in our ego is needed because, you know, we need to join together, harmonize our gifts with others to explore not just personally, but also collectively what's helpful, what truly serves to bring forth creative offerings mm. that meet important needs in our times where we're dealing with, you know, so much more fear and hatred than we've ever seen. So much uncertainty and times of uncertainty tend to trigger people's fear and hatred, tend to trigger us versus them mentalities. And it was that, it was really, that was my original impetus was we have to find a way to help people move beyond that. 
the tendency to divide with our mind is a very dangerous thing that perpetrates immense unnecessary suffering. And in order for us to truly be persons of peace, we have to excavate and allow liberation and transformation in the places where we divide, where we you know, say this person or those group of people are bad and invalid, where we annihilate with our own consciousness somebody else or any part of ourselves. And that's a tremendous inner work that involves working with your shadow continually, you know, being willing to admit, yeah, sometimes I have hatred. Yeah, sometimes I annihilate people with my mind. Sometimes I'm so caught up in myself. I'm not remotely present. I think I am, but I'm not. That's the kind of honesty and rigor that is required mm. to be of help in our times and to be a minister. And that kind of continual interest in letting obstacles that are really coming from our own ego be liberated um, is really crucial. Mm. Mm. I, I know in my own experience there's such a, an awe and a hunger for this work. I see it in my own work being able to talk about about our training and running these intro days that we do around the UK and Ireland for people to come and see us and touch us and drink tea with us and, and, and really get a sense of what, what this is. Um, yeah. And, and so often it's, it's people often share that sense of, Oh, there's a, a finding of my tribe, a finding of my people. There's other people that have this yearning or this ache or this need to right. to allow their life to to be of service, but in a yeah. way that is that isn't confined or restricted exactly. by a particular yeah. denomination or or right. or faith. Right, and the and the constraints that you know certainly have value. I would never say they don't, but that might not necessarily be up to speed with the realities of our culture. Mm. For example, you know, the misogyny that exists so strongly in most conventional religious traditions is just, you know, frankly, it's not up to speed with where we are now. Yeah. And any modern woman isn't going to accept that, and nor should we, mm. because it doesn't serve humanity. To not allow the feminine full participation and to be open to the gifts of the feminine is a shame for everybody. Our world has not thrived under that model. And what's happening anyway is a breakthrough and we're not, we're not turning back. So I think that's also a part of, you know, what needs, what, what is possible because notice how many women go through this training. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And it's not a gender issue. You know, we need awake and more integrated you know, switched on human beings of all different kinds. And we also need people of different cultural backgrounds too. I mean, I'm yeah. very grateful for, it was Anita and Ola, who I know are still around in the community, who mm. very patiently busted our balls <laughs> many years ago. Mm. And I have tremendous gratitude and appreciation for their enormous patience with us and how I have more understanding now of how hard that must have been for them mm. how hard it must have been for a black man or woman 
to walk into the room when there's no other black people in the room. Mm. And, you know, now I know that's changed. Thank God. Yes. And that it takes those first few mm. to be brave enough to show up. And it takes the rest of us to be open to what they have to say and to be willing to receive feedback that confronts us on unconscious things like white privilege yes that we might not even have had any idea about mm. and that that's part of it too because those are become unnecessary divisions that keep in place us versus them mindsets that mm. limit human beings joining their best understanding and clarity and humanity with other human beings who also have that desire because what we're dealing with in our world is going to take more than just a few of us fulfilling our potential individually. It, it's going to take more collaboration than we've seen. Yeah. And for something to grow, we need one another. Mm. And I think that right there is something I've understood right from the start. And I think it comes out of a, uh, uh, an embodied feminine perspective on how human beings need a relationship to evolve. When you think about it, our ego, our personal ego was shaped into a structure of personality through a process of relationship. Yeah. And so to decompress out of the, you know, limited aspects of our ego, we tend to need relationship because there are certain things we're just not going to see on the meditation cushion. Yeah. They're not going to come up because they're not getting triggered. Yes. Yes. So the issue is, okay, when you, things get triggered through other human beings, are you going to practice with that? Are you going to see that this is your mind? This is your own structure bringing forth that reaction. How are you going to work with it? Are you going to shut down? Are you going to get upset and behave like a five-year-old? Are you going to say, I don't like that person? What are you going to do in that moment? That, to me, speaks of how mature a person is. But in order for a person to mature like that, they need tools, they need support, they need a context for looking at themselves and working with the things that come up where we understand this is just part of it and there are skillful means and unskillful means of going about that process. So what are the skillful means? What can we learn about how we navigate those tricky spots in our own soul uh, that come out of us all, no matter, you know, how devoted we are to our practice. Yeah. And um, so for that, we need relationship and a particular kind of relationship. Yes. Yes, it's such a, yeah, we can do hard things was a big mantra for, for, for me in my, my year. And um, it's such a, I think it's such a blessing. It's something I talk so much to people about the exquisite and excruciating work that this training invites you to, to do, except it's sort of like the inhale and the exhale. You're doing the work within and you're doing it outwardly in community. I'm so moved to really think about our hundreds and hundreds of graduates who have grown from your willingness and your courage, the enormous um, depth and beauty and richness that is being woven into our world and will continue to 
hopefully for the next 20 years and, and beyond. Yeah. I just, you know, before we wrap up, I want to also acknowledge, I spoke about Peter Dewey, but I also want to, you know, give immense gratitude to some of the others who were there in the earlier years, mm. and, um, particularly people like Mike Stewart, Faye Barrett in particular, mm. Jan Story, you know, to, and uh, Stephen Wright. These are people that came along. Mike was one of the earlier ones. Um, Elaine Walker mm. was one of the early ones, and she went away for a while. And, of course, Diane Burke and her and my friendship was such a powerful force mm. in the mix. And she was a great support to me. And so when she left, broke away from the new seminary and started One Spirit, you know, we were support to one another, you know, and we would share things about how we were evolving the curriculum with one another. That was really beautiful and a blessing, mm. the privilege of leading the the rituals at the end of the year. I would go over to New York City and uh, help with the process of the initiation and the ordination there, and she would come here. And it was just a really amazing privilege, really. Mm. Yeah thing it's an amazing privilege it uh it was like a, a whole other training for me it's a mm. ran me every every test and trial <laughs> possible and it took a lot out of me really did it took a lot took everything i had and then some yeah but i am so happy that it's continued that it mm. is now an adult yeah it's not 18 is 21. Exactly. Into the world. Yeah. So it's a great joy that as I birth another baby at this Mm. time in my life, the way of grace, body of teachings and the whole, I'm birthing a whole other movement in that. Mm. And I have also birthed another community that I've been running here called the Living Grace Sangha in California. And all the retreats that I have been doing that have, been both integrating and including a lot of what I built at the seminary, but it's at a whole other level. Yes. Uh, the methodology and the teachings themselves and um, have gone to a whole other level. And I would hope that in the coming years, I will get to share more of that mm. with anyone who's part of the One Spirit community. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you from the depths of, of, of our being, um, mm. just such deep reverence and gratitude. It's been such a joy to hear the story. It's like sitting at the feet of an elder and really hearing the story of where we began and how we came to be. And I really honor the, yeah, the grit and the grace and, and your endurance and your willingness and your courage. Um, well, there's one, one other thing I wanna say that's really interesting that it was in the three years before I left, I started getting guidance because I started getting guidance to, when I came home at the end of the day, to go up to my computer and to write down what we did. Do you think I really wanted to do that? (laughs) No. (laughs) But, you know, so a lot of really what this took and taught me was the importance of spiritual obedience, mm. of doing what's asked and not complaining about it, just doing what needed to be done. And it was very clear, this guidance, this is what you have to do. 
And had I not done that, I don't think this would have continued because there would have been nothing. There would have been no facilitation notes that the next wave could take and then, you know, work with. There would have been nothing. It would have fallen apart. So the fact that I had written all these handouts on pretty much every subject that was on the curriculum Mm. and that I had taken the trouble to write facilitation notes of what we had actually done because I'm the kind of teacher that doesn't sit there with notes in front of me. It's all just coming through. I mean, it's all in my head, but it's all just coming through and I'm working in the moment with what's going on. So that's, when I look at that, I go, wow, we never really know why we're asked to do the things we're asked to do. But if we would just be obedient and not argue, then I wonder what's possible for us all. Yes. It's a perfect way for us to wrap up our conversation by saying to you, Miranda, thank you for listening to the call and to all of our listeners to say thank you for listening and please keep listening to the call. Amen. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you, Miranda. May this conversation just be really sweet and helpful to everyone who hears it. And to those of you who are listening, you know, I'd love to meet you. Don't think of me as a relic from the past. Come to what I'm offering now. There's a lot and you'll find it at two websites, www.thewayofgracebook.com and www.mirandamcpherson.com. I can't wait to meet you. listening to bring it to the altar stay tuned for our next episode where you'll meet the fabulous rev deb connor a recent graduate rev deb was ordained with one spirit in 2018 a woman with many strings to her bow she is also a taoist priest in training a published author an acupuncturist a transformational life coach mixed media artist and the founder of lovely vegan as you'll learn she is also hilarious. It's an episode filled with lots of easy laughter. In the meantime, you can find us on Instagram at Bring It to the Altar. And for more information, visit interfaithfoundation.org.